You're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. Our priority is to make sure that these people get better. Going from bad to worse, an influenza outbreak has struck Guam following Typhoon Moa. Also, PNG MPs are now being asked to ratify U.S. security deals. And later on... We are now insisting on full decarbonisation by no later than 2050. There are hopes the shipping industry will finally wean itself off from fossil fuels. An influenza bee outbreak at temporary evacuation centres in Guam has been reported. It's been three weeks since Typhoon Moa wreaked havoc on the island, leaving thousands homeless. More than 700 people have taken refuge in these shelters that are poorly sanitised and ventilised. Rachel Nath spoke with Mayor Melissa Savares, who is the mayor of Dedero, one of the worst hit areas. Thank you for joining us, Mayor Savares. Um, so it's three weeks since Typhoon Mawa. What is the situation like on the ground? Okay, well, we're still in recovery mode. Um, we're down to uh, residents applying for any kind of relief. And another thing to add to this is that there's still many residents that don't have uh, power and water in their homes. That frustration, that just adds to the the frustration and the irritation, right, that that people have. So it's it's moving along. Houses are houses that were totally destroyed are, are have, you know been inspected by. Our FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Administration uh, agency from Washington, D.C., their representatives are here doing those assessments Mm -hmm. and verifying that these homes were really destroyed. Uh, We've we've consolidated 12 shelters. Some families have gone back to homes or have fixed up certain areas in their properties to live on while they're doing the repairs and cleanups. Others are still in the shelters, so we're still at uh, two shelters, two large tier three shelters still on uh, open with over 700 people in them. Right. Now let's talk more about the centers. There is a, currently an influenza B outbreak at the temporary evacuation centers. Could you tell us more about this, please? Yeah. I'm not the medical person for the facility, but uh, there have been um, confirmation that there are some individuals in the shelter that have influenza B, and they've actually been segregated or isolated Uh, Now, there's no isolation rooms in the facility, but they've actually been isolated from the general crowd, meaning they've been moved into like a side area of the gymnasium where they're not in an immediate congregated. uh, Their beds, their pots are not right up into a congregated space. Is the segregation within the facility, the evacuation centers, enough? No, it's not enough. It's what do you enough. What do you propose needs to be done? Uh, you know, of course, um, we need to find ways. Maybe if, if families are asking if they can either go back, or of course, first of all, 
our priorities to make sure that these people get better. So if they have a primary physician, some physicians actually, two private physicians actually went in to the shelter of concern to see um, the conditions plus also to check on those patients um, to see if they needed medication and they'll do the prescription so that they can get the necessary medicines to take care of the influenza that they have. Right. And those that are still in the facility that aren't able to return home, what is the circumstances like for them? The reports coming out of Guam say that the evacuation centers have poor ventilation, have poor sanitation. Um, So currently those that are staying in the evacuation centers, is it safe for them to be there? So in the one shelter that is in the warehouse, ventilation is very poor in that area. However, the other one that's in the gymnasium, there is ventilation. I mean, it's not air conditioned, but there's enough ventilation where the wind, you know, there's breeze coming through. It's not all day. You know, we have our hot days. Um, so the breeze is flowing through the building. Yeah. The, the struggles are the ones that are in the other facility where there is very limited uh, walking spaces because it is in a warehouse that packs household goods and ships stuff off. So, you know, there's, a, there's supposed to be a sterile, sterile area for things that are going to be shipped off island. So um, things are not uh, put in that are not supposed to be part of that packet, that 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 shipping container, right? So mm-hmm. they have they're not free to walk in those areas um, as they would like to. And what do you think can be done about that? Well, of course, you know, um, you know, we, as a government, they are looking at a new location. For these people, these families to go to, and uh, at the same time, they're trying to identify those families that need just a roof to be repaired. That the roof team prioritize their repairs so that they can go back to their homes to um, to stay in. If it's just a roof that needs to be repaired and then your walls are not going to be compromised. Uh, that's kind of like the priority right now is uh, to get those individuals their roofs back on their homes so that they can go back and, and stay with their families. That was Dodato Mayor Melissa Savares. The Papua New Guinea Parliament now has before it for ratification two agreements signed with the United States Secretary of State last month. The Defence Cooperation Agreement and the Ship Rider Agreement have been touted as measure to improve PNG security. A correspondent in PNG, Scott Whitey, has been looking at the developments in Parliament. Don Wiseman asked Mr Whitey what was the reaction from MPs to the deals. Generally, it's been received very well. I mean, the Papua New Guinea's leaders, you know, MPs in Parliament have recognised that, yes, we need a lot of help in terms of surveillance, in terms of fisheries, in terms of capacity building of, of the Papua New Guinea Defence Force and, and other aspects of law enforcement. The Defence Cooperation Agreement gives Papua New Guinea the opportunity to 
improve various aspects of its defense. The agreement itself is very broad, and a, a few MPs have raised concerns that we, Papua New Guinea, is giving a lot more uh, in terms of uh, the items that it is trading, a lot more to the U.S., and the U.S. is receiving that. Um, and, and the concerns centered around the the taxes that the U.S. doesn't, U.S. workers, contractors, and, and military personnel don't have to pay taxes, import taxes on machinery, equipment, and anything that the U.S. brings in is tax-free. So there were a lot of concern about, okay, what are we getting in terms of monetary value? What are we getting from it? Uh, the agreement also covers the construction of buildings on bases in Manus, uh, the Lombrum Naval Base, the Jackson's Airport, the Lay Port, and Nadzap Airport. So it's a, it's very, very broad. Uh, and the Prime Minister stated earlier last month that the there will be supplementary agreements. In what form, we don't know. Let's look at some of these elements. When they talk about training for the PNG Defence Force, well, the PNG Defence Force gets training from the Australian Defence Force, the New Zealand Defence Force. What additional training is it going to get from the Americans? That's a question I've put to various parties, including the uh, Defence Force. Now, it's, uh, again, subject to supplementary agreements that will come later. The Defence Force has already received some equipment from the Americans in the form of personal protection equipment, armour, knee pads for troops operating in the highlands and across the border, uh, along the border. So that was worth between 1.3-1.5 million kina, and that was delivered immediately after the signing of the agreement. In terms of training the Defence Force, the head of the Defence Force, Major General Goina, has indicated that there will be capacity building, capacity building for soldiers. And again, as as I said, the details of that still have to be ironed out between the Defence Force, Foreign Affairs and the other government stakeholders. There's been talk for years about building up the size of the of the military and PNG, but there's never been the money put aside for it. Is there any indication that the government's going to provide the additional money that no doubt will be needed here to assist this development? I think uh, a lot of the dependence is, is on this deal to get additional funding to increase the size of the Defence Force to better equip them to get the training that they need. There's also been, over the last, uh, I guess, the last term of government, a lot of focus on, on the funding. Well, well, a lot of talk about funding the Defence Force, increasing the number of officers and other, other ranks. So there's been a recruitment drive. I, I don't know if that recruitment drive will continue this year, but in the last five years, there's been a series of recruitment drives bringing in new soldiers and paying the ones that are expected to retire, allowing them to go. So all that has been happening uh, in the last five, ten years. The shipping industry is at the heart of global trade and economy, transporting around 90% of the world's goods. However, it's also a major source of pollution, with the sector emitting close to 1 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions annually. It's for this reason shipping experts say next month's International Maritime Organization's Climate Summit is crucial for the sector to fully decarbonise, to end its reliance on fossil fuels.
And as Caleb Fotheringham reports, Pacific nations are driving momentum to get shipping in line with global climate targets. 175 IMO member states will try to reach a historic agreement on shipping's climate ambition when it convenes in London from the 3rd to the 7th of July. The global regulator is expected to improve on its current goal to halve shipping emissions by 2050. Dr Peter Nuttall is a shipping advisor at the Micronesian Centre for Sustainable Transport. He says the London talks is the industry's last chance to align itself with the Paris Agreement goal and avoid dangerous climate change. Us and many, many other scientists around the world are calling the shipping's last chance to stay 1.5 degree compatible. Dr Nuttall says the industry needs to start the transition away from fossil fuels. The speed and scale of transition required is unprecedented in shipping's world history. Basically, it needs to transition from fossil fuel to non-emitting fuel pretty much within the next 15 years. The heavy lifting more needs to be done by 2040. He says Pacific Island states are leading the call for fast change. Who are now insisting on full decarbonisation by no later than 2050 with hard intermediate targets of 2030 and 2040. We're calling for an equitable transition, one that leaves no states behind. University College London shipping and energy expert Dr Tristan Smith says it's likely the IMO will agree to zero greenhouse emissions by 2050. But doing just that won't be adequate to remain aligned with the 1.5 degree goal, unless it's backed with ambitious global cooperation and strong policy measures. Whether that's defined with an equitable transition or not isn't clear. Whether that's going to involve a 1.5 aligned transition, which would need much to be done this decade and in the 2030s, so quite steep reductions by 2040, that isn't clear. Pacific nations, including climate-vulnerable countries from Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Latin America and the Middle East, have also expressed support for a carbon price on international shipping. One of the several proposals on the table is sponsored by the Marshall Islands and Solomon Islands asking for a greenhouse gas levy starting at 100 US dollars for every tonne of carbon emitted. While the European Union also supports the idea of a levy as part of a basket of measures. Dr Smith says putting a price on emissions in the form of a tax would close the price gap between fossil fuels and clean alternatives. He also says a levy would make for a fairer fuel transition. If we just regulate in a technical way, we just end up driving an unequal and inequitable transition because only countries with economic means will be able to be technology participants and many countries will experience some negative impacts that there won't be anything that we can do. It's unlikely that a levy will be adopted in the July meeting and a future date is yet to be set to make a decision on it. But Dr Smith says the IMO is giving the right signals that an emissions tax will be accepted at some point. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts from. So from myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, so far so far.